0: we're going to read today from revelation chapter 2 we've been going these last few weeks through the seven letters to the churches found in revelation it's a wonderful passage where jesus is speaking to the church of the first century and very clearly speaking to the church of the 21st century and so we're reading today from the about the fourth church in revelation chapter 2 verses 18 to 29 revelation chapter 2 Verses 18 to 29, and we're reading from the new international version of the Bible to the church in Pharatira. To the angel in the church in Pharaoh, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and by eating the food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Two factory workers were taking their break when the woman said to the man, you watch me. I bet I can make the boss give me the rest of the day off. The man asked, well, how are you going to do that? The woman said, you just wait and see. So she went back into the factory, and she climbed up a big tall ladder, and she hung herself upside down from the ceiling. All the other workers looked at her and began to laugh and to point, and so the boss came in to find out what all the commotion was about, and seeing this woman hanging upside down from a beam, shouted at her, "'What on earth are you doing, Ethel?' The woman replied, "'Boss, I'm a light bulb.' The boss looked at her, shook his head and said, "'You've clearly been working far too hard. "'It's gone to your head. "'You need to take the rest of the day off. "'Go home and rest.' And so she lowered herself down from the ceiling and was walking out of the door when a male, fr- when a male friend to the follower. And the boss said to him, "'Oi, where do you think you're going?' the man turned to the boss and said, I'm going home too. You can't expect me to work in the dark. <laughs> Fire Attire was a factory town. It was a worker city. It was quite literally the Dagenham of Asia, or any Americans that are watching, the Detroit of Asia. It was a factory place, a great place of manufacturing, filled with the noise and the smells of production. what is fascinating in this particular series of, of churches that, the, that Jesus is writing to is that fire attire was the least impressive of all the cities. It was the carbuncle, if you like, upon Asia in terms of cities. It was the least important. It was not famous like Ephesus, famous with one of the seven seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. It wasn't famous in any way like Ephesus, or beautiful like Smyrna, the very first ancient designed, properly designed city, famous for its streets, its houses, and particularly its street of gold. It wasn't like we heard last week, like Pergamon, famous on his conical mountain, rising out the valley. Seated there, it was beautiful with fantastic temples. The centre of Roman administration in the east. Of, fire attire was small. It was a place awash with the smells and noise of production. A factory town. And yet it is to the smallest of all the cities, the least important, the smelliest, and the least beautiful of these seven cities that Jesus writes the longest letter because Jesus's economy is not like our economy he turns things on their head with God it's not about the bigness and the brightness and the glories of mankind God's economy is different with him the first is last and the last is first and so Tire of Fire sat in a low corridor connecting the Hermus and Ca- Caicos valleys. It would first of all be formed merely as a garrison town. It was literally just a fort initially and it was there because that famous area um, guarded the approach to Pergamon. Pergamon, we heard last week, had been the capital of Asia for nearly 400 years and it was a way in which any army could be stopped or held back until Pergamon got itself ready to, to, to receive the incoming invaders. It was a frontier garrison formed by Seleucus I of Syria and then was passed to Romans in 133 BC. It had no great temples. It was not a beautiful place. In fact, if you were to go and visit Phira uh, in, in, um, in modern-day Turkey, you would find the ruins of the least impressive of all the cities. It wasn't a great place to visit. In fact, the local deity, was Tyrimnus, who appears on local coins, riding on horseback and armed with battle axe and club. And he was actually also the god Apollo, the Greek sun god. And he would stand as the city's god and would be worshiped in the town on feast days. By far the most fascinating and important thing about this city was the archeologists have discovered that there were more trade guilds in this city than in any other city in Asia Minor. The inscriptions have discovered, though not especially numerous, they mention the following guilds in this city. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dryers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. Each one of these trade groups had a trade guild and a trade guild god. In fact, we encounter a citizen of Thyatira uh, actually in, uh, who comes, becomes a Christian under the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts. Her name is Lydia. You can read about it in Acts 16 where it says this. On One, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira whose name was Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth and fire Attire was famous for its purple cloth. And the reason for this is that normally purple cloth was very, very expensive. The only way to get the dye for purple cloth in the ancient world had been to dive in the, in the ocean, the Mediterranean, and find a special shellfish or mollusk and you had to retrieve that mollusk and from that mollusk you had to extract the dye. But they discovered in Thyatira this particular plant root called the madder plant. And the madder plant has a root that when boiled produces um, a range of colors from indigo to purple. And this gave this city the great ability to actually dye wool various colors. And this madder plant is still used in Turkey in the 21st century to produce dye. And you can see some of the different colors dye that's produced there. It's no longer, um, it's now called Turkey Red. So if you ever want a, a shirt in Turkey Red, it's going to be one of those colours. But it's produced by the, by the roots of the madder plant. And this particularly put Phyratyra uh, on the map because it was unique to that region and to that city. So there were many dealers like Lydia uh, who began to sell a cheaper version of purple than those produced by the mollusk that had been used for a long, long time. Sapphira Tyre was a working class city. It was a worker's place, a factory, a place awash with the smells. And the first thing I want you to notice is that one of the three questions that comes up in this passage. And the first of those three questions is this, to witness or to work? To witness or to work? You see, to be a Christian in Pergamum, as we heard last week, was to live on the edge of a volcano. And many Christians in Pergamum were persecuted because they refused to declare that Caesar was Lord and to burn incense to him once a year. In Fire Tyre, it was a very different situation. Because there were so few temples, there was no imperial temples here. There was no imperial cult. So people weren't required to declare Caesar is Lord. But what they were required to do is to worship the God of their guild. The persecution for Christians in Thyatira came because people couldn't belong to the guild of their particular trade or profession. The focus of this town was not so much on religion, it was on trade, it was on commerce, it was on production. Day and night the city would have been a noisy place with the noise of animals being brought into the city for slaughter, the noise of hammers of the metal beating the bronze. It would be in a place of many smells the smells of heated metal in the smelters the smells of the pottery ovens and the smells of the tanner and the main way of dealing with tan to dye to, to, to soften the leather and in fact to whiten the cloths was to use urine people used to sell their urines in ancient Rome all across the empire you would not just We'd go, use a toilet, you keep urine and it would be sold to tanners. So you can imagine, you've got the smell of the melting metal and you've got the smells of places that are actually soaking cloth and soaking leather in urine, then hanging the leather up to dry. It was a place that was awash with smells, with noise, with activity. Over the city would hang the fog of the fires every day. And the streets would be abuzz with the merchants, with the traders, with the professionals going about their business. It was a noisy factory floor, was this city. And these many trade guilds that the archaeologists have discovered operated like modern trade unions. You could not work in a profession in that city if you did not ally yourself to a guild. Just like you couldn't work on a shop floor in a modern factory if you don't belong to a trade union. And the problem with all these guilds wasn't just belonging to them. That, that was fine because they were set up to, in order to maintain a standard and to encourage commerce and to encourage trade, to relate to each other across the cities of the empire. The problem was, is these trade deals all had a trade god. And when you first of all came along to celebrate and to meet with your other members of that guild, you would meet in temples. And you'd sacrifice to that God. You'd bring along meat and you'd sacrifice a small part of that meat and the rest of the meat would provide the food for your feasting. And these guilds, as typical in the worship of the religions of the day, often were accompanied by lots of food, by lots of wine, and then by lots of immorality. And Very common, these guilds, their meetings, their, would, would be so full of excess that at the end of them they'd break down into fornication and and into lots of sex and become an orgy and this was a problem what were christians to do because if they were to belong to the guild and be able to apply their trade they had to worship a god be involved in these feasts and perhaps be exposed or even involved in these orgies Many of the Christians have refused. They had refused to go along with this. And Jesus mentions this in verse 9. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. It's interesting, that they're commending in two couplets. The first couplet is their love and faith was commended. And this couplet is key because it tells us that love and faith go together. You cannot have faith without love. You know, our belief as Christians is not academic. It is not simply something up here. It's got to issue out in action. People who don't live out their faith and allow it to touch their actions are not real Christians. Christ, you cannot say to Jesus, Jesus is Lord without living by Jesus being Lord in your life. By letting it issue out in, in, in actions in the world. If Jesus is light, People will see the light of Christ. If Christ is in you, they will see that light. And if they can't see that light, then the question is, is Christ in you? Love and faith go together. Being a Christian is about living out the love of Christ. And then the next thing that Jesus commends in his church is a second couplet, service and perseverance. Perseverance. Service and perseverance, and this is the hallmark again of, the, of true Christian discipleship. Service is not just a one-time affair. We don't do one thing for the Lord and that it, sit back for the rest of our lives and let other Christians do all the work in church. That's not the way it works. Service and perseverance go together. When we become a Christian, we follow Christ, and that means we serve him continually. Service and perseverance, continuing that service is something that's critical. One of the problems we have across the world in churches is so much is done in churches by very few people and there's a lot of spectators in churches. We are not called to be spectators, we're called to be disciples. Ask yourself and ask the Lord, what are you doing in your Christian life of the Lord? How are you serving this church? How are you serving this town? What are you doing for Jesus? Service and perseverance go together. Too many Christians do a job once and then sit back in their laurels and say, well, I did this once. I did it for 10 years. In the last 15, 20 years, well, I haven't been doing too much, but I did that. Look at that. That's my laurels. Service and perseverance go together. We don't start to um, live an active Christian life and then stop. Jesus sat down. He rested the moment he went to heaven. And that's the moment we rest too. We're not here on earth. To sit back on our haunches and pretend we've finished because we haven't. And Jesus says to this church, I know your deeds, but you're now doing more than you did at first. Look at that. They're praised because not because they started well, but because they're finishing well. They're doing more now than you did at first. That's the way it should be. In verse 19, but there was a but, and the but was coming. And that was they were tolerating a false teacher. Jesus tells the church in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immortality, but she is unwilling. Now scholars have debated for a long time as to who this Jezebel character is. It's been suggested she may have been the bishop's wife. She may have been the famous oracle. Tyre, uh, Tyra was famous because outside the city walls there was a, 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 a small um, sanctuary in which we, you could find Sibyl Sabanthi And Sybil Sabanthi was a famous oracle. And you could go to her and you could ask her for instructions and guides. She was a, a prophetess. But it's unlikely to be her because, well, she's not part of the church. And clearly the the person was someone who was part of the church. And she's named Jezebel, not because that would be her other name, her actual name. No one would have called uh, a a daughter Jezebel in those days, following the famous Old Testament character. It's a bit like someone in Germany calling a child Adolf after the 1940s. You just don't have. I've lived in Germany for eight years. I've never come across a single Adolf in Germany. Jezebel was not a name you call your child But Jezebel was a name given to this woman because of her association with the practice of the evil queen we find back in the Old Testament. You can read about her in 1 Kings 16 and also in 2 Kings. Jezebel was a princess. She was a daughter of Ephbel, the king of Sidon. And when she became the king of Ahab, who was an Israelite king, she brought all her family gods with her, particularly the god Baal. And you've got that famous encounter, haven't you, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And and basically Jezebel's um, reasoning was she didn't mind everyone worshipping Yahweh as long as they also worshipped her god, Baal. And so Ahab, who tried to appease his wife all the time, built temples in and around Samaria to the worship of Baal and also Asherah. And she was a domineering woman who greatly influenced her husband to stray from the true religion of Yahweh. And this is what Jezebel was doing in this church in the first century. She was a first self-styled prophetess, encouraging Christians not to worry about the guilds. Not to worry about being too like the local culture. Basically, she said you could do both. You could have your cake and eat it. You could be a Christian but also be assimilated within the local culture. It didn't matter, she was arguing, whether you ate the meat and went to the feasts in the temple. It didn't matter if you got drunk with a local local priest in the temple and then ended up having sex with people. It didn't matter because as long as you worshipped God, you could do these other things. You could add the bad with the good. As long as you're worshipping the true God, it didn't matter if you actually got yourself involved in these other affairs. And at least that way, you wouldn't suffer economically. That was her teaching. For her, it was a case of not needing to be true to Jesus necessarily, but you could try and be true to both. And she used this method of teaching, she used a very common method of teaching, which we even found in the modern church. The teaching of the deeper truths. And I've come across this in theology time and time again. The deeper truths. But you can't simply take the Bible on face value. You go to the Bible and it says this and it's in black and white. Well, you need to get beyond that by going to the deeper truths. The deeper understanding. I love theology and I love apologetics. And one of the first things I encountered with the, was the famous documentary thesis um, of the Old Testament. Which is so elaborate and so complicated and so ludicrous. And it was believed by many scholars in and around Europe for around about 200 years. And it was a way of getting around the idea that possibly Moses could be related to the first five books of the Bible. And that, Moses, that the books of the Bible may have actually been written down in cuneiform tablets. And there was a wonderful exposure of this hideous theory called documentary hypothesis that came much later by a guy called Henry Wiseman who was the curator of the British Museum and an archeologist. You couldn't take the Old Testament, the first five books on face value. They were actually written by lots of schools, that was the Bocumonti hypothesis. Very complicated, very elaborate, really a house of cards, and really quite ludicrous when you got into it. It Came from a Tubingen school in Germany. And these deeper truths are being used nowadays to explain away how we can actually ratify our culture with the culture of the world, how we can say these are okay now. We last 2,000 years Christians haven't believed this, but now we can because of these deeper truths. And books have been written to try and explain away the truths of the Bible. The deeper truths. I'm a great believer in logic. I'm a great believer in rationale. And I'm a great believer in Occam's Razor, and Occam's Razor is a philo- principle from philosophy that teaches that the simple answer is invariably the correct one. We don't need a Heaths robinson idea of theology, with all these wires and cables and strings going over to explain why this could not be possibly be true. Occam's Razor is a principle of, of science, science and philosophical thinking that's been around for hundreds of years. The explanation requires the fewest assumptions is usually correct. And we need to apply Occam's razor when we come to read scripture. Take scripture as value, on its value as being the word of God. Because if it's not the word of God, we have no authority in our lives. And anything could mean anything. And it's only a bit of time before we begin to erode away the belief that Jesus really is Lord or Jesus really rise from the dead. And then we've lost the resurrection, we've lost our hope, the centre of Christianity. Resurrection is not logical, it's not scientifically demonstrable, but we believe it because of faith, because Jesus rose and died, and because we encountered Jesus by his spirit in our lives. We know it's true, but it's not logical, and we've got to defend the truth of Scripture And what was happening in in, in, um, Thyatira is that Christians were beginning to assimilate with local culture because it was easier to do that than to stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's where we are in 21st century Britain. In a church that's been challenged to reflect the pride of this country and to become like other, other people outside the church. And to change the teaching of scripture, even the teaching of Jesus Christ, to reflect what's going on in our world. Because it's uncomfortable for Christians to stand up for the truth of Jesus. We should always be loving people who love the world in which we live, but we love them with a the love of Christ and not with my love or your love. And we mustn't put the words of our culture into the mouth of Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. And they, the Christians in the church, had this stark difference to make. Do they become economically prosperous by joining the guilds? Or do they stand up for Jesus Christ and try and go it alone? But not really alone, they go it with Jesus. And the second question they came across was this, to remain true or to compromise? To remain true or to compromise? The central question in this letter is this, were they to listen to Jesus or do they listen to Jezebel? Jesus or Jezebel. And Jesus tells the Christians at Thyatira, but they cannot fool him. He is not to be, he's not beguiled by the words of this false prophetess, nor is he convinced by our, our, our arguments, our excuses. Jesus is not concerned about the deep truth of Satan, as it says in this passage, but the truth of your, deep truth of your heart. He warns the church that the followers of Jezebel, her children, will perish as a consequence of following her teaching. He tells them in verse 23, I will strike her children dead, but then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will pay each according to your deeds. He's not convinced by the deeper truths, by the convoluted arguments that we may offer to explain our actions. He looks beyond the action and looks at the intention. His gaze penetrates beyond the words and excuses. Jesus looks right at us, at our hearts. Hence, it's described in the opening part of his letter as having more than 20-20 vision. He's given eyes of fire in verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. This is one of the many, there's many parts in this letter that really resonate with the factory town of uh, Thyatira. And the people who worked in the city were used to these blazing furnaces, used to heat the pottery, used to smelt the metal, to shape the metal. And Jesus has eyes that are not just fire, but are like blazing fire. When he looks at us, he's not deceived, he's not fooled. We may try and convince him we're okay, we may try and convince him that what we're doing is okay, but he knows. He sees our hearts, he has eyes as a blazing fire. He sees our arguments of what they are. He sees our real intentions and our motives. The sight penetrates of Jesus. This description of Jesus is very similar, similar to that found in the book of Daniel, where in Daniel 10, verse 6, it's written, His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. You know, one of the things we've got to get right in our society and in our church is that Jesus is not a weak figure. One of the reasons that Christmas is so popular in our society and people like to come into church is because they can cope with Jesus when he's in the cradle. They can get him up, pat him on the head, give him a rub, give him a hold and then put him back, put him back in the cradle and leave him to next year. Little Jesus, gentle mild, is an easy Jesus to contend with. But the Jesus we find in Revelation is a man who comes in judgment of the world. And that is a Jesus people really struggle with. He has eyes of fire. He is not fooled. In verse 23 he says, I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each according to what he has done. People, there are many Jezebels, false prophetesses and prophets in our society that try and teach you that Jesus is weak. You hear it in some pop songs where Jesus is beguiled and fooled by the devil who's far more crafty and clever. That's not what Jesus is the Bible. Jesus is strong and powerful. He sees us as we are. He sees the truth. If Jesus is either the truth or is not, he's either the way or he's not, is either the life or is not our culture and Jesus cannot both be true but he doesn't just have blazing eyes he also has feet of burnished bronze in verse 18 these are the words of a son of God whose feet are like burnished bronze again another reference to this factory town and the workers of metal those who both produce bronze and then burnished it Burnished bronze was often used in armor. This is a picture of a coin from the period, and you can see the metalworker there making a Greek helmet out of burnished bronze. And bronze was the most common source of, 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 of metal for armor, using helmets, shields, and, and greaves and other de- protection on the body. It was made um, and used because it was strong and, and could defeat the javelin, the spear, and the sword. And Jesus has got feet like burnished bronze. In other words, he is immovable. When he stands, he cannot be pushed back. He cannot be plied and pushed over. He is no seven stone weakling. He was immovable. And, 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 and shoes of bronze were the feet of the soldier who came to crush the enemy, to put the enemy under his feet. This speaks of Jesus' strength and resolve and his ability to crush sin and evil in his path he doesn't turn up with a pair of rocking a pair of Nike trainers or a pair of nice sandals with white socks he comes with shoes that are made of bronze polished bronze to crush his enemies and when Jesus comes again he's not coming to have a parley with the world he's not coming to have a, um, a, a kumbaya session with people And sit around people with a great big party and say, well, have you made your minds up yet? Now's the time we make our minds up. When he comes, he comes on a war horse, a white horse. That's what Revelation tells us. And he comes to crush sin. And if we prefer sin to him, we will be crushed in that process. That's what the Bible tells us. And this again would resonate with the people of Thyatira because the city's deity was Trimnos. And we can see in that coin there, that's there. He comes on a white horse. He comes in judgment. He comes carrying a mighty axe. And the people of Pharaoh Tyre, Tyre would understand that Jesus is the real God who comes on the white horse. He will drive with blazing eyes to see the truth as it was and feet like burnished bronze. So the final question for the people the christians at fire attire was this to reign or to ruin to reign or to ruin you see jesus in this passage is encouraging people to take the long view you know it's very easy to take the short view isn't it to think simply strategically about the next week or the next couple of days and it'd be very easy for the christians to compromise and to say well i'll join the guilds and I'll, i'll do those other stuff and well you know it has to be done because you can't be a I I can't be um, a a, a, a tanner without being belonging to the tanning guild, or I can't be a potter in pottery without being a member of the potters' guild. It's very easy to take the short view, and Jesus is saying, "Don't take the long view. Think about the eternal future here. Don't compromise now for immediate relief." He encourages them to hold on. This is beautiful in verses twenty-four and twenty-five. He says, "This I will not impose impose any other burden on you." except to hold on to what you have until I come. Don't let it go, folks. Don't let your faith go. Don't let your faith go because it's unpopular to be a Christian in the 21st century, because it may put your loggerheads with some of your friends. Don't let go of it, because you've got eternity to look forward to if you hang on to that truth and hang on to your Lord. And the promises here are two promises, and we finish with this the first promise is to rule he says in verse 26 to the one who holds on or to one who is victorious and does my will to the end i will give authority over the nations this is a quote from psalm 2 this is why we began the service with psalm 2 jesus says follow me and eventually you will reign with me that why you may suffer now for being a Christian, why the people may take the mickey out of you now, why people may call you all sorts of names because you follow Jesus Christ, in the future you will reign with him. That is the promise of the Bible. That's what I believe will happen for eternity. Psalm 2, we read earlier on, verses 8 to 9, Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Jesus has been given the authority over all the nations. We read this later on in Revelation 12, verse 5, where it is said that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And in Revelation 19:15, it says this: coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. We wish to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is not someone to be taken for granted, he is someone to be feared and someone to be followed at the present age he may be rejected and we may be rejected with him mocked persecuted and dismissed but when he comes again that will end period he says that we will rule with him and he says finally in verse 28 we will rise with him he says i will give that one the morning star what does that mean The morning star is the star that rises just before sunrise itself. In the darkest part of the night, the morning star comes up. And Jesus himself is described as the morning star in Revelation 22 and verse 16, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus is saying that after the darkness of night, after the darkness of persecution, of suffering for him, we will rise with him. And we will shine with him. Because he is the bright morning star. You see, in this passage, there is an element of judgment. He warns those who ignore him, who try to go their own way, that one day we will face his reign and his judgment. And we're told that he will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Again, the language is the language written to a factory city. And in a city where there was many potters, they would know that pottery and iron do not go together. If pottery encounters iron, pottery smashes. And this in turn to a million little shards. And Jesus teaches us in this passage in the, in the Bible, we cannot serve two masters. We can't belong to the guilds of this world and belong to Jesus at the same time we can't belong to the the temples to try meanness and worship him the god Apollo at the same time we're trying to worship Jesus Paul tells us in Romans 12 verse 2 this he said do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and prove god, what God's will is you know, if the church simply reflects our society, our society's standards, our society's morality, we've got nothing to offer this world. I've got plenty of mirrors in my house. As I get older, I hate looking into them. We don't need a mirror in this church to reflect what's going out out there. We need a light that burns with the intensity and love of Christ in this church, that shows people a different way, We mustn't be conformed to this world or conformed to the standards of the guilds in Phyra Tyra. And Jesus said this, "This says no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. People were called to serve Jesus. And he has eyes of blazing fire that sees the truth. He has feet of burnished bronze become come to crush sin. Let's make no mistake. What's fascinating, finally, to close with is that this city of Thyatira, their god, Trin- Trinimnus, had a special title. The title of Trinimnus was the son of Zeus, the son of Zeus. Because Zeus was the father of the Greek, God, the Greek pantheon. And so Trinimnus was quite literally the son of God. That was his title. And to join the guilds, the trade guilds, was to worship Trinimnus as the son of God, the son of Zeus. And to pay homage to him. You know, but Jesus is saying, I am the real son of God. In this passage, in this letter to this church, there's the only time in the whole book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. You can read all of Revelation. It's not used, that, that title is not used anywhere else. It's used in Revelation, in this letter to this church. Jesus says, To the letter of churches in Thyatira, of fire I write this. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is saying to the church. Listen, this God in your city is a fake. He calls himself the son of Zeus, but I'm the son of God. I'm the son of the living God. And I have eyes that blaze with fire and see the truth. I have feet that are burnished bronze. He's saying, don't be fooled. Wake up. Realise that I am God and I am coming. Jesus says to us, don't do it. Don't give in. Take the long view because that way you'll find that Jesus has far more to offer than the trade guilds. The trade guilds in in modern day Turkey, where the city of uh, Faratara exists, have all gone. They're now just inscriptions on ruins laying in what once was a city. But the words of Jesus Christ are living because Jesus is the Word of God and He's living and active and He is alive. And one day he is returning. And when he comes, we need to be ready. Because if we are ready for him, we will reign with him and we will rise with him. Hallelujah.